to the Restart Radio Show, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because, unlike most, we don't focus on all those new shiny, shiny things to buy. Instead, we focus in the value, uh, on the value and the stuff we already have. Uh, the Restart Project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and a happier relationship with electronics. And our monthly community electronics repair events here in London, called Restart Parties, are just the beginning. My name is Janet Gunter. Uh, I'm joined by Ugo Verlaudi, and we're co-founders of the Restart Project. Hello. And we're joined by uh, Ben, who is one of our longtime volunteers and a student of engineering. Well, hey. <laughs> and today we're going to talk about skinny, about thin, slim, our obsession with small, small, and increasingly skinny, Not that's the important part of the small, um, electronics. And we've seen trends towards miniaturization in electronics for years, but increasingly it seems like we're very much focused on the thickness of electronics. And we're going to talk about, well, um, an iconic piece of consumer electronics that just turned 15 this week. And we're th then going to move to some more uh, recent news about uh, mobiles, and we're going to talk about tablet and computer design going forward. So, Ben, um, it was the 15th anniversary of the iPod this week. Mm. Um, uh, do you, Tell us about your, your personal history with the iPods. Um, I think the first time I heard of one... Uh, I would have been like 15, so like kind of 2003. And there was the guy in school who was the Mac guy. And he had a, this, you know, kind of weird white thing. It looked like a little Game Boy. Um, and he was like, it's great. It plays music. And we didn't really get it. Uh, but then within about a year, suddenly everyone had to get one. There was, I remember one Christmas where everybody got an iPod and it became ubiquitous, you know, so quickly. Yeah, I mean, it really was. I remember the, the, the transition to digital music, basically. Um, it turns out that um, we were just doing a little bit of research that iTunes actually came out before the first iPod, a couple, about eight months before the first iPod. Um, but digital music seemed to proliferate so quickly um, in that time. I believe, Ugo, you would have been finishing university. I was just maybe entering university at that time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we were university-aged. Yeah, so, yeah. I had finished by the time <laughs> that I could invest in an iPod. Um, but, yeah, I remember actually my experience of buying an iPod, which sadly then got stolen, but that's a different story, was... Uh, combined with my first experience of using Amazon. So I have this memory of the two being the same, like this jump into the world of digital. I had never bought something online mm. and I had never imagined I would buy something to just play things that in theory you could only download from the internet. Although okay. I never bought anything ever in my life from iTunes myself. I feel like MP3s definitely proliferated before iTunes and, you know, it, it was a couple of, and then there was the age of digital sharing, right, with Napster and all that. That was years prior, I guess. Napster, Just, mm -hmm. the, my experience with Napster dates back at the summer of 2000. That's when I, I was actually working for a startup on doing online radio, uh, one that quickly failed. But that <laughs> summer, we were all using the company networks to explore file yes. sharing opportunities. And I remember other things. plugging in at university to Ethernet and feeling like I'd plugged into some amazing, you know, 
network of music. It was like I all of a sudden I had access to everyone else's music on the network, and that was pretty heady experience. Um, but so in a sense, iTunes, the the software, and then the iPod came a couple of years later, and they were, I guess, we were just talking about this. They were the first um, product that Apple released that really reached many more people. Um, Ben, you were saying you mm. remember the Christmas of 2004. Yeah. Everybody wanted an iPod. Is that, yeah. is that right? That's uh, what yeah. I got. And, and until then, that one guy at school had had one, and that was the year that everybody got one. And they had like six or seven colours. So I remember I could tell you who had what colour even because it was such an iconic thing to, to finally have. You know, they'd wanted it for ages. And I suppose, um, well, what, what we're interested in with, we're not so interested in the proprietary aspects of of the iPod and its software and Apple and all that. But what we are quite interested in as the Restart Project is the staying power and the longevity of these devices. Now, a lot of people still hang on to these older iPods. Mm. Um, and, uh, well, I have a, I can think of a couple of friends um, off the top of my head who have one. I have an old iPod Touch, the first generation that came out. And I like to always say that I remember the salesperson telling me not to protect the screen because I would want to upgrade it uh, a year later and I still have it. And uh, by the way, when he said upgrade it, didn't mean I would like to increase the storage in the same device, no, but meant, you would like buy yeah. another one yes, soon. Yes, he meant you'll be back here in this <laughs> store a year from now. Um, so, yeah, so tell us about, uh, Ben, how people, well, why, why they have such staying power and how they can be upgraded they can actually be upgraded not thrown away but improved mm. well I, th- I think um ultimately you know mp3 is a compressed audio format and um you know the question marks over whether the quality is good enough will always exist but at the same time uh anyone who's happy with it is going to always be happy with that sound quality so things from 10 years ago that still play music perfectly well are viable devices you know the, the actual tech hasn't come that far it's only the storage space that has uh, so, you know, we um, recently built one with the Restart Project where we took a, I guess, a 2006 Yeah, iPod. 2005 or six, And we, um, we basically opened it up. We replaced the battery because they tend to wear out. Uh, so we replaced that with a new one and we put in a, a flash drive. So we went from like a, a 30 gigabyte hard drive to a 128 gigabyte flash drive. So we increased the space you could store on it and also made the battery uh, consumption lower. And and by doing that, we've basically given it like indefinite lifespan because you can fit in uh, four times as much music and it's going to keep working for another 10 years. And by almost incidentally, we reduce the weight of the device because the hard drives, apart from consuming more power, actually are chunkier, heavier. Yeah. And the SD card that we replaced it with, you all know an SD card is something that you don't even notice the weight of. Yeah, inside the iPod Classic, actually about um, three quarters of the space is hard drive. That's so, really interesting. Yeah. And um, I well, I personally don't think I have 128 gigs worth of music, <laughs> but, but, but there are people that must have it. But I guess in a way it shows that the possibilities are endless and also that what we've been told, which is that these devices were sold as throwaway devices, that there was no serviceability at all. And we can probably recall the very first edition of the iPod, uh, which didn't even have a replaceable battery. And uh, that 
uh, after long campaigns, actually, Apple then decided to change this. Um, and the lifespan of the battery originally was just one year. Mm-hmm. But anyway, by doing what we did with that iPod, we contributed to demystify the fact that you can take some of them apart and improve on them without needing to buy a brand new device, which yeah. ultimately still does the same thing as mm-hmm. most current players. I mean, it's really interesting to look. So the the peak of iPod sales, uh, according to uh, data that's been graphed on Wikipedia and says it's from Apple, was uh, was 2008. So to think that there are still so many of these iPods out there um, that could have continued to function, it's almost, um, well, it almost kind of really bucks the logic of the Apple that we know today, where it kind of, it's mm-hmm. in a way, it's almost like completely opposed to the logic of the Apple we know today, the iPhones and everything. Well, I think, you know, with, with most Apple stuff, there's always a killer feature. Every year in the iPhone, there's something new that they use it use to sell it. And the same with the uh, the MacBook. It's either smaller or lighter or a faster connector. But the uh, the last time they really brought in a, a, an actual new feature for an iPod was about 10 years ago, um, when they went to a touchscreen with Wi-Fi. I can't think of any more features on top of that, really. Well, again, okay, and there are people that will say that, you know, why why is an iPod still relevant, right? I can listen to my music on the phone, but we, I mean, maybe the three of us here are, are unusual, but it seems as though there still is an argument to have a device that's offline that uh, doesn't use up the battery power for our mobiles. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just a reliable, you know, single single function device for listening and, you know, with all the proliferation of streaming services, at the same time, it's quite comforting to know that you have a certain amount of music that you know it's indeed in your pocket and doesn't need any Wi-Fi nor any data connectivity in order to access it. And so it works even if you're in a tunnel, if you are on a boat or wherever, you don't need to be under coverage of any network. Well, we can coin the Apple phrase, it just works. It does, indeed. Um, so, well, we're going to, we started with the iPod, um, and the iPod actually represents a move towards miniaturization. So the first ones that came out were rather big, and then they definitely did try to miniaturize them in many different formats, um, and some less repairable than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's the, or there's the well, the urban legend about, <laughs> about uh, the first iPod, um, which and you, you say you believe it, it appears in a, in a Steve Jobs biography or some version of it? Yeah, it's, it's the apocryphal story, so it, it seems to be the one that's accepted. Do you want to tell it or shall I? Yeah, I, I can tell <laughs> it. So um, this, I guess, would have been 2000. Um, they were developing the, uh, the new music player to compete with a, a, an opposing company's one, actually. Um, and uh, the, uh, the technicians took it to, uh, to Steve Jobs into his office and they said, oh, here's our new device. It's small and it's beautiful. And he, he looked at it. And he walked over to the fish tank in his office and he dropped it in and an air bubble came out and floated up and he said, make it smaller. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, whether or not he actually did that, it's pretty significant that that story is still rattling around. And so that really speaks to this um, race to miniaturization, this notion that um, that that with well what's so-called moore's law the idea mm-hmm. that storage w- was getting is getting better and better um that things would become smaller and that consumers would continue to seek out smaller and smaller things and um there's been a lot written about this but this really has uh this this race towards miniaturization really has driven a, a lot of uh, innovation, we could say, but also there is a dark side, which we're going to talk about today. 
Um, and and what we've noticed is since devices have become more screen-based, since um, touchscreens, essentially, the drive towards miniaturization has moved towards thin and skinny. Mm -hmm. So our devices have gotten flatter. They've pancaked out, in a sense. Um, and we, we've been following, like, I guess everyone around mm -hmm. the world, the Note 7 uh, debacle with Samsung. And there's been some really interesting writing about how the thin design really uh, locked Samsung into this disaster scenario. Do you want to explain, uh, Ben? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the given consensus is that, um, firstly, uh, about two models back, the Samsung Galaxy Note uh, went from having a removable battery to having a glued-in battery, uh, and also a glued-on back rather than a removable back. So uh, at that stage, it was basically, uh, we're wasting space on catches and casings for the battery, and we can make the phone thinner if we choose to glue it in and just sandwich it shut. Uh, and so by doing that, you made it much harder to uh, to work on it and put much more pressure on all the components because there was no room to breathe. And, uh, well, the founder of iFixer, our friend Kyle, wrote in a piece in Wired uh, about their teardown of the Note 7 shortly after its release. And he writes, uh, it's a great piece, quote, digging a battery out of the Note 7 is like brain surgery, except the patient can burst into flames. The phone is glued shut with no external screws. Opening it required blasting the back of the phone with hot air, prying away the glass, and pulling out a layer of components before going after the battery with a small plastic crowbar. Well, I like how he calls it a crowbar. <laughs> but to say that um, when they started experiencing a malfunction of this battery, they'd essentially back themselves into a corner here. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really... We, we noticed that... Um, well, we noticed that we, the reports were saying that the first, you know, the, the first sales of the Note 7, that whole category, class of devices was potentially dangerous. Then they started taking them back and, the, and they had trouble refurbishing them. Isn't that correct? Yeah. And uh, so basically they thought they could simply sort out uh, by taking them back and then fixing them and putting them out there again. And actually that turn out to be problematic and the fact that the second uh, wave of replacement product ended up being just as unsafe actually helped create a much bigger proportion problem which only cancelling the whole device completely um, helped to make more visible to the whole world and what I'd like to also point out to is two weeks before the first flaming uh, burst uh, of the battery, actually the tech press was in such incredible, insane hype mode praise of that device. And every single publication was just saying how this was the best uh, phablet ever made. And in fact, the very best phone ever been made. And so it's interesting to see these cycles. Just two weeks later, everyone's slamming Samsung as the worst company ever because mm. of this mess that they created. <laughs> So, yes, yeah, so when Samsung finally pulled the plug on the Note 7, um, after much speculation and, well, a general general panic from the, the, the same tech press that had uh, praised it, um, then the question arose, will it actually be even recyclable? Uh, because of the way that, that, well, the batteries were essentially dangerous and the way it had been manufactured, mm -hmm. as, as uh, Kyle pointed out. <laughs> 
So um, Motherboard started asking whether the, these devices could actually even be recycled. And this was really, for me, uh, kind of, it really hit home to me how the design, design decisions um, affect not only our use of devices, but actually what happens to them at end of life. And Motherboard writes um, in, a, in a piece um, from the week that the Note 7 was discontinued, Quote, a Samsung sp spokesperson told me the phones will not be repaired, refurbished, or ever resold again. Quoting the spokesman, we have a process in place to safely dispose of the phones, the company said. Which, I don't know, Ben, you're, you're studying electronic engineering. What would that process be? Incineration of some kind? I don't even know. Well, I mean, incineration, you know, would be... Um Let's put it this way. If you have 30 phones in a box and one of them blows up, it's going to make the other ones blow up. So uh, <laughs> yeah. incineration would become explosion. So, yeah, like maybe they're going to bury them in concrete or something. It's, it's, they're pretty volatile. So, yes. <laughs> so, so this is definitely the dark side of the skinny. Um, you know, we saw earlier it was kind of comical. Do you remember, was it the iPhone 6? There was the bend gate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the notion that, the oops. Six, uh, the 6 plus, yeah. Yeah, we made it so skinny that when someone sits down and it's going to bend. You know, that was kind of funny. But now this is kind of, this has really gone to the next level in some sense. Also because at the same time, while we want them skinnier and skinnier, at the same time we seem to want them with larger and larger screens, mm -hmm. right? Which require uh, larger batteries yeah. and there is this insane drive for higher and higher specs of the screens, the higher resolutions which you couldn't tell unless you glued them to your eyes mm. the difference, right? And so where is this heading? I mean we've said it before but it's reaching a point where it, it can't really go on much further. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, my last two smartphones, so the last three years, have both been really thin. And I, I look at it and go, wow, that's visually so beautiful. And then I start dropping it because I can't actually hold on to it. And so I've, I always get a big, thick case. So I would happily trade that case for battery power. And I think most people would. Yeah, no, it seems, it seems though, okay, to be fair, it does seem like consumers are a little bit confused about what they want. I mean, I do think that... Uh, I remember we did actually at one point meet it. We, we did ask a Samsung rep about the change from user replaceable battery to glued in battery. And he did say that, you know, there was a lot of demand for a skinnier device. And I think, I mean, I think that the manufacturers are in somewhat of a bind in the sense that people, they say they want a battery life. They want the bigger screen. They want it to be, we want it all. And that's mm -hmm. part of the problem is that um, there's not enough kind of awareness that there is a bit of a trade-off. And it's people are used to having to recharge the battery at the end of the day anyway. I mean, and if they're not sure that a second day would be fully dealt with regardless. So for a number of people, it's not become immediately obvious that being able to replace the battery yourself is actually a value. It's something to, to desire. Well, and, and then children don't even know that these devices have batteries at all I mean, they just yeah. experience them as these sealed that tend to work yeah sealed boxes um another article caught our eye in the past week and it definitely also has to do with uh skinny and thin and it's um, a project uh by a um finnish company and uh community uh to build together to build a tablet and computer um and i thought that was a really interesting uh story in the sense that it revealed that people who are quite obsessive and geeky about hardware really care about the form factor and 
the company itself is developing this was was a little bit taken aback with that. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more, Ben? Yeah, it, it was really interesting. They're a startup company, and they launched their first product and got some bad feedback on on a few th- things. So um, they basically said, "Okay, well, we're designing the next one. Uh, why don't, as we design it, we talk to users?" So they have a, a direct feedback loop during the design process. So by the time it's released, it should be very close to the ideal from their their general user base. And they're called uh, Eve Tech. So I wonder if they were somehow inspired by Wally, by the character Eve and Wally. <laughs> they're um yeah, they said that um that that users were actually uh quite quite concerned with the slimness of the device. But again, users wanted it all. They wanted mm-hmm. all of the ports, all of the battery life, and skinny and thin. And, and some of these compromises are actually not all possible. So even mm-hmm. if you want some ports, you cannot get s- less than certain thickness because mm-hmm. it's just smaller than the port itself. And so we're seeing that uh, emerge in more and more laptops where the number of ports has to decrease Otherwise, they will have to increase the thickness. And again, it's it's interesting because the thinness of the device doesn't necessarily give you any indication of the battery life. So that's where some of the confusion happens. You see devices that are super thin, the typical Apple, most recent laptops that tend to have the best battery life on the market. And so the argument around thinness and battery life for non-handheld devices for for laptops, say, is not necessarily consistent. But the flexibility of the device, and so whether it has multiple ports and it can be used in more flexible ways, certainly is compromised. Well, also, you were saying that um, that uh, keyboards are affected. So, um, you know, the keyboard, for many of us, is, is our main kind of interface with with a computer and when and, and, and it's a very personal thing the kind of the, the the type of keyboards that we like so you were saying on some of the thinnest devices keyboards have been yeah the the thinnest keyboards actually it, it's impossible for them to achieve thin maximum thinness to continue to use the same type of design and so for example apple has implemented this so-called um uh, Fly, uh, butterfly? butterfly keyboard, uh, which has very, very minimal uh, travel key. So when you press a keyboard, you feel the key going down and there's a certain amount of pressure that you need to put in terms of grams, if you want to be super geeky about it. And they've uh, iterated on this concept and reduced it drastically so that when you try these keyboards in the most recent laptops, basically the key doesn't bounce back as much because it doesn't travel so much. So a lot of the criticism, again, from very technical sites has been around, uh, well, the the device is very nice, the battery is great, but it just is not nice to type on it. And it's funny because the whole point of a laptop was supposedly so that you could type information in. But again, it's changing. A lot of people might use these devices to consume media uh, rather than uh, to type long essays, as some of us do. Yeah, but um, there's nothing more frustrating than trying to type on a tablet. For example, I mean, most people can probably relate to that. Um, and the whole, I thought the whole point of these tablet computers was that they kind of they served both purposes that um, that you could you could pull out the tablet, you know, and take it to the sofa or to watch a film. But you could also yeah. use them as a computer. 
there's always going to be an element of jack of all trades and master of none so in that context you know you might have a tablet that has a keyboard but it doesn't mean it's as good as your laptop's keyboard or a pc keyboard or for people who are old enough to have practiced a typewriter so there's there's always some kind of compromise and it's funny also if you consider that laptops are called that way also because they're mm -hmm. supposedly fitting on a lap. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of these devices have compromised the weight balance so that actually they don't fit so nicely on the lap if you're trying to, to type. Well, you're saying they might actually just literally fall off. Yeah, tip over because the screen is what constitutes the main processing power uh, of a device that you just take out normally the battery, yeah. an additional battery and a keyboard that's in the second part, if at all. And so it's just the balance is not quite right. For most of them, you can't actually use them in the original use of a laptop. So if you don't have a desk, which yeah. is kind of bizarre. Wow, I'm trying to imagine the animated GIF of a of a cat typing, <laughs> or yeah. a cat tipping over the the tablet computer or something. Um, another thing that caught our eye uh, this week, speaking of thin and everything getting smaller, is that a Fairphone, uh, who's known for bringing out essentially the world's first modular mobile, is now bringing out a slimmer version of the mobile. Now, we have a lot of designer friends and uh, should we say people who love to upgrade and love the latest and greatest and they have been a little bit unkind with the chunky format of the Fairphone 2. Now most people who've used it up until now are you know community members are very committed to good design transparency all the values that the Fairphone represents but this is interesting because this may actually help the Fairphone reach a wider audience. Yeah I I, when I saw uh, that they came up with this new back case, I, I thought it was genius for two reasons. One, because the product is exactly the same, but it's just the back casing that changes. So we hope that it might become available also for uh, people who already own the device. And it transforms how you might perceive the device, because as Ben said earlier, you know, whether you can um, hold the device properly might change how you feel about the device. And some of the criticism for that phone was indeed around the thickness. And so because everything else stays the same, they don't have to do any change to a device, but just change the one modular part, which is the back cover. And and also they have interesting new colors, whatever. So that might attract a complete new, new type of audience. And even looking at the pictures online, it does look like it's a new device. And it's interesting, made me think about the old Nokias that had the exchangeable covers. Mm -hmm. And people used to talk about, oh, can we change the cover and make it look and feel new? Yeah, no, I mean, that was one of the, the, the best things, in a sense, about the, the chocolate bar phones, wasn't it? The sense of kind of individuality and... Uh, mm. Yeah, changeability of them. And we've even carried that on because now when you buy a case for your phone, it's a personalised thing. You buy the one with the right graphic or design that you love, which, yeah, that makes sense. But, I mean, if you could do it to the phone itself, that's even more personal. Yeah, like giving the phone a new skin. Um, well, and that's the promise of modularity, really, isn't it? Is that, you know, that, that's, that's the promise. But again, Fairphone's uh, take on modularity is for us the only one that so far makes the most sense because the changes they're making are changes that make the most of an exact uh, already existing device and making it more uh, a second iteration that doesn't involve recreating the internals of it and so that we'd like to see more of that emerge 
Definitely. Well, it's been an interesting conversation about thin, and um, we're not about to say that things should get, uh, well, heavier, bulkier, chunkier, any of that. Um, but we, you know, we should keep in mind when we're seeking out thin and slim devices what all the trade-offs are. And we've talked about loads of them: um, battery life, um, you know, some of the some of the ergonomic aspects. Um, it's just really important to keep that in mind. Um, this week we have, uh, well, we have some events coming up um, as a part of our London tour. Um, we've been touring London with the support of Recycle for London. Ugo, do you want to tell yes. us about those? So we have two events coming up uh, in two neighborhoods where we've never been before. Um, tomorrow between 6 and 9 p.m. we'll be in Croydon at the Bernard Weatherhall House. And then on Saturday, uh, between 1 and 4, we'll be in Walthamstow at the Priory Court Community Centre. And more information on our website, therestartproject.org. You've been listening to Restart Radio on Resonance 104.4 FM. Um, and thank you uh, to Optinoise and Cassini Sound for our music, which was made with lasers, spinning plastic discs, photovoltaic cells, and discard electronics. Until next week. Thank you. <laughs>